Good morning. It's good to be back with you. I had planned to be with you last week, and then it, the world just went crazy. Uh, it seems like we've had a lot of craziness in our world, and last week the weather jumped into all of it. Uh, if you are visiting here this morning, I, I'm not the regular preacher. Uh, this congregation is in the midst of a, of a search process, a time of transition. And uh, My name is Wes Crawford, and I'm a professor at Abilene Christian University, just a little north of here. And I'm delighted to be here with you again. Uh, enjoyed so much being here with you a couple of weeks ago, and maybe down the road in, in the coming weeks we'll, we'll be with each other again. I know transitions are tough. Uh, I've been with some congregations uh, through times of transition, and I know there's a lot of uncertainty. There's some excitement there because something new, and then there's some, re- there's some kind of depression maybe for things that have gone away. And so it's just a weird time. So I want you to know that I'm, I'm praying for you. I know a lot of folks back at ACU that are working with you through this process are praying with you as well. But I, I sense that you're in good hands in this time of transition. I've gotten to know a couple of your shepherds here in the weeks that I've been here, and I know they love this church very much and pray for this church often. I didn't tell you when I was here a couple of weeks ago that I've known Raymond for a long time, and I always wait till at least the second time I'm with a church to say something like that. You never know where that's going to get you. Uh, Raymond was actually a student at LCU just before I was, and he was kind of a legend there. Uh, Raymond was in a singing group called Best Friends and uh, was there for a number of years and did very well, represented the school very well. And I actually met my wife in that same singing group. We followed Raymond a couple of years later and so uh, enjoyed kind of following in his footsteps in those ways uh, around the campus of LCU. And I've known Ricky uh, for a little while just through ministry circles. And um, So you have great people here working with this church, and so you're blessed in that way. But know that we continue to pray for you in this season of transition. As I begin this morning, I want to begin with a, with a story, and like a lot of stories, it begins this way, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a man that was driving his truck on a mountain highway in the middle of Colorado, far from here. Am I on as I step away from this? I'm going to make sure that my light is on. And if so, if it's not working, I'll just use this one, and that, that'll work okay. It was the middle of the night. He'd been driving for 20-plus hours, a professional truck driver. This sleep deprivation will do something to you. And he was having a hard time staying with it, seeing the road and paying attention to his driving. But you need to know this man was a Christian. He had spent his entire life going to places like this in the congregation. He was even a Bible class teacher. Had a wonderful Christian family. They were there every time the doors were open. He was a wonderful Christian man. In fact, you could search the entire world over and you would be hard-pressed to find as good a Christian man as this man was. If you've read the book of Job, and the very prologue of the book of Job, and it tells the readers what a great person Job was, and it ends with, and he was the greatest man in all of the East. That's what this guy was. Wonderful Christian man. Well, he was entering his 21st hour of sleep deprivation. And he came upon a sign that he never saw. He passed right by it. But it was an important sign. The sign said, road closed. He was going up and down hills, up and down hills, around turns. And he didn't see the sign, and so he slipped on the ice. 
and then it was too late. He tried to slam on the brakes, the truck jackknifed, and he went off the side of that mountain. Just before, just before the truck hit the ground, something happened to this man. In his desperation, he let something slip. Even this godly man, the last words out of his mouth before his truck hit that ground were profanity. And he didn't have time to ask God for forgiveness. So let me ask you a question. I know we are not the ultimate judges, so you can't punt on this question. Only God has that power. But in your estimation, is this guy okay before God? Or will he not be saved because he didn't have time to ask for forgiveness? Now, there are at least three different groups of people in this room this morning. The first group thinks that's absolutely absurd. God's grace is so much bigger than this man's one little sin. Of course he's okay. That's group one. Group two thinks that this man is lost. He sinned. He didn't ask for forgiveness. It's pretty simple. God said if we confess our sins, God is faithful and God is just and God will forgive our sins. This guy... Whatever the circumstances may have been, he didn't follow through with his part of the agreement. So he's lost. And then there's a third group. This group, to be honest, just isn't really sure. They want this man to be okay. They want it all to work out for him, but if they're honest with themselves, they're just really not sure where this guy stands right now. This morning... I want us to explore this issue just a little bit. What role does confession play in the life of a sinner? And maybe even more fundamentally than that, how does God's salvation work anyway? So in order to answer some of these questions, I want to take us on a very brief tour through a very short book in the New Testament, 1 John. In fact, I want to look at four different texts, very small texts, in that little small book. And I think by, by going through some of these passages in 1 John, we'll have a better understanding of how maybe to answer these questions. The first one I want to look at is a text that's very familiar to many of us. First uh, John chapter 1, beginning of verse 5, those first few verses there. This has been long time one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. And in God there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and we are walking in darkness, then we lie. And we do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and His Word is not in us. There are so many wonderful things in this passage that we could spend the rest of the afternoon diving into. But I want us to concentrate our attention for just these few moments on one passage there, one verse, verse 9. And there's a word there that has caused all sorts of issues for people over the centuries with this text. If we confess our sins. That word confess is kind of a loaded term. It's one of those things that sounds so simple to understand. And whenever we hear the word, we immediately have images and connotations run through our minds. And we think that we understand immediately what it means. When I hear the word confess, especially when I hear the word confess in a room like this one, I think of someone making the long walk up to a platform like this, standing before people, telling everyone what they've done wrong, all the mistakes that they've made in their life. And perhaps someone will come up and pray with that person And that person will be forgiven by God. Maybe that's the image of confess that you have. In other environments, you may consider something like the Catholic Church with someone going into a confession booth and sitting next to a priest, telling that priest what he or she has done wrong and asking for forgiveness and asking for prayer. And somehow that, that moment leads to forgiveness, the prayer, the acknowledgement, the confession. I think because that word is so loaded in our culture and in our times, and it has been for many centuries, I think maybe we can try to consider a different way to understand what John is saying here. You know, the word is much less complicated than that. The word simply means acknowledge. It's it's probably a more accurate way to translate it in our own time, to acknowledge. If we acknowledge our sins, God is faithful, God is just, and God will continue to forgive us from our sins and will continue to purify us from all unrighteousness. John is saying something I think that's very different than I believe we often think that John is saying here. If you acknowledge that you are not perfect, said another way, if you just admit that you sin, God is faithful. And God will forgive you. In fact, God does forgive you. And notice the converse of what John is saying here, down in verse 8. If we claim, however, to be sinless, that's where the problem occurs. Because no one is sinless. In fact, the people who claim to be sinless are lying to themselves. And even more importantly, they're making God out to be a liar. So the very first thing you need to remember as we make our journey through 1 John here, we must acknowledge our sinfulness. Easy enough. Second passage is over in chapter 3. Just probably one page over in your Bible here. Beginning there in verse 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Know that he has revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. And everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. 
for the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin, because they have been born of God. Children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do, do what is good and what is right are from God. And those who do not are not from God. If you were unaware of it before, let me, let me tell you this now. Most of our English translations are really good. They really are. Uh, people ask me a lot of times, which is the best translation? I'm not sure that's, there's a good way to answer it. They're, they're all really, really good. But some of them, probably all of them are inconsistent in places. And we see one of those right here in verse 9. No one who is born of God will sin. That's what many of our translations say here. A better way to translate that, and the way that this phrase is translated in other places in this book and elsewhere in the New Testament, no one who is born of God will continue in their sin. It's an ongoing process. It's something that it's, that it's continual. It's, it's ongoing. So if you take this to mean that every Christian is sinless, well, that contradicts all sorts of things. And one of the things that contradicts is the passage we just read. In the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, everyone sins. Deny that you sin, you lie, and you make God out to be a liar. What John is describing here is a lifestyle. No one who is born of God continues in a lifestyle of habitual sin. A child of God continues in righteousness. A child of the devil, to use the language here, continues in unrighteousness. Christians are going to sin. When you were baptized, that did not make you immune to sin. That made you immune to sin's punishment. There's a difference. You remember that passage in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is writing? It's a, I'll, just, I'll confessionally say this to you. I remember when I was in junior high, and... and you just you can't read that passage in a room full of junior high boys. It's one of those passages. We used to call it the doo-doo passage uh, when I was in, in junior high, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, because Paul says things like, whatever I want to do, I can't do. No matter how much I want to do the things that I want to do, I can't do them. I want to do what God wants me to do, but somehow I just can't do it. And still, instead, the sin that's living within me causes us to do all sorts of things I don't want to do. It's a very difficult passage to read out loud, especially in a room full of junior high boys. But do you understand what Paul is saying? Have you ever read that passage? This is Paul, the apostle, the evangelist, the hero of the faith. What Paul is saying here in very sometimes unclear terms, Paul wanted to do good. His passion was to do good, but he just, he just kept on sinning. You ever been there? John says a Christian will not live a lifestyle of sin, a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin. So the second thing to remember, we will all sin, but we must strive to live this life of righteousness that John is describing here. I want us to look at another passage here, this one in the very next chapter, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. There is no fear in love. Don't you love that? There's no fear in love. Now the implications of that because of this passage are are this. Those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. I think that some folks have overlooked this passage. And we've not really paid attention much here. Maybe we, we've paid attention to parts of 1 John and other parts of the New Testament. But for some reason, this passage has been overlooked. For most of our history, and I'm speaking of our, our tribe here and churches of Christ, I can stand before a group like this and I can ask the question, are you saved? And 90% of the people would answer the same way. What do you think they would say? I hope you took the words right out of my mouth. I hope so. Where does that come from? Why do we not have this confidence that John is writing about here in this small letter? I think it's because we have an incorrect understanding of what love really is. There is no fear in love. Love has no fear. John has an interesting way of describing fear. I, I see John as a, as a preacher here trying to find a good analogy, a good metaphor to describe what fear looks like. And the word that we land on here in our translation is punishment. Punishment. I think that's a strange way of describing what John says. John, in describing fear, it's kind of like that feeling that you get when the lights from the cop come on behind you. All right? The stomach drops. The uneasiness. The... I'm about to have to pay for what, I've, for what I've done. You're about to have to pay an account for what you've just done wrong. John says there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. So a child of God can have confidence in her or in his salvation. That's good news. And that leads us to this last passage, this one in, in chapter 5. Look down at verse 13. I write these things, and John is summing up. He's just finishing up this letter, and he's summarizing everything that he's written about. And finally he says, I write these things to you. Why? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
It's the purpose of this book. <laughs> I'm writing all of these things so that you can know that you have eternal life. Church, we should have confidence in our salvation. We are children of God. And if we live this lifestyle of God, we should know that we are saved. Now as I read verse 18, listen to this important words. We know that those who are born of God do not continue in this lifestyle of sin. But the one who is born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. Said another way, we know that anyone who is born of God does not live this lifestyle of sin. The one who is born of God, that is Jesus, keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot overtake him. That's really good news. But for some reason, some of, you, some of us refuse to hear it. We don't accept it. We ignore it. We don't believe that it's true. Instead, we live kind of a, a spiritual ping-pong life. We do really good for some time, so we're over here and we have confidence in our salvation before God. But we mess up. And so we find her, so we're lost, and, we, and we're, we're outside of God's salvation, but, and we're over here for a little bit, and when we pray and we ask God's forgiveness, so we move back over here and we're saved again. And these are going on, but we mess up again, and so, we, so we're back over here and we're lost, and when we pray again and we confess, and we're back over here, and we live this life back and forth and back and forth, in and out of fear, uncertainty. So many people who follow Jesus Christ live this back and forth life. You know how John responds to that? Have confidence in your life with God. You don't have to do anything to make God like you again. Because you are God's child. God's blood continually cleanses us from all sin. One sin does not throw you into the devil's camp. Because everyone sins. Everyone sins, regardless of your Christian maturity. But instead of accepting that gift, so many of us in some ways try to, try to buy it in some way. You may have heard the, the story of something that happened in the Spanish-American War. A woman by the name of Clara Barton was leading the American Red Cross at that time, but she was stationed in Cuba. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, not yet president, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt at that time was leading a group of soldiers known as the Rough Riders. And they had just come out of a battle and his men needed food. They were hungry. Some of them were wounded. And so he goes to Clara Barton and he says, I need to buy some food for my men because they're starving to death. I have money to pay of my own funds and just bring us some food. But she refused to sell him food, and he was kind of exasperated by this. And he said, listen, these soldiers are tired, they haven't had anything to eat, they're, they're malnourished, and they need some food. Would you please, here's, here's money out of my own pocket. She refused to give him anything. So he kind of storms off for a while, and he's, he's relaying this to another soldier. She refused to sell us any food, we need food. The soldier looked back at him and said, listen, food's not for sale. You just got to ask for it. And then he understood I think some of us are like that sometimes. Instead of just accepting the gift, many of us try to find some way to, to buy it, some way to do good, to earn it. 
find ourselves living back in the days under the law. But if you remember, that's why Jesus came. God sent his son because God knew that we had no hope of doing this on our own, on our own volition. That's what the gospel story is really all about. God comes in the flesh to fulfill the law that we're unable to fulfill on our own. Our generation, you know, is not the first one to struggle with this issue. In fact, I think this is something that Christians have struggled with since the very beginning, and I have proof of that. A couple of weeks ago when I was with you, I spent some time with you in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I want to return there just for a moment uh, toward the end of this sermon. Uh, 2 Corinthians this time. I want you to listen to what he writes. Now remember, this is hundreds of generations ago, all right? Think how timely these words are that were written so long ago. They could have been written in our own time. Since then, Paul writes, we have such a hope. We act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the readings of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of this, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as they're reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Why do you suppose Paul wrote these words? My hunch is that Paul wrote these words is because these folks were a lot like us. They had difficulty believing that God's love really was that big. They'd heard the sermons they were having a great difficulty understanding that God could really love them that much. And here's the thing, church. God really does love us that much, and God's love really is that big. So what did we do with this guy that I mentioned a few moments ago, driving on the mountain? Well, let me rephrase the questions, maybe in a way that John might ask them, if John were here. Did this man leave, live a lifestyle of righteousness? Or did this man leave and live a lifestyle of sin. John, Paul, even Jesus, none of them ever said that we would be perfect. They just said we should spend our lives striving for perfection. You know, God's grace is much larger and stronger, mightier than we ever give it credit for being. I stand before you this morning because of those things, and I say to you three things. Number one, I am a sinner. I just am. I find myself like Paul in Romans 7. I want to do good, but I find myself continually doing things I don't want to do. I'm a sinner. The second thing I want to say to you is I live a lifestyle of righteousness. I set my mark on, on God's law. I, I, I live this way. I love God with my whole being. 
I strive to be the person that God has created me to be. And the third thing I want to say to you is I have confidence that I will one day live with my Savior forever. Now, it took me a long time to get to a point in my life where I could say that. I really did. I grew up in a context where I was fearful. I really was. I'm honest with you. I loved God. I came to places like this. And I somehow ingested the message that I had to be good enough. I had to do the right things. I had to reach a certain mark. And my love was filled with fear. I can't tell you how liberating it was to finally come upon passages like this in 1 John to recognize that I should have confidence in my standing before God. But I know there are many people that are still living in that fear. There may be people in this room still living with this fear, maybe coming to places like this your entire life and you're still living in that fear and your love is mixed with fear and you go back and forth and back and forth. So what should we do about that? How do we handle how do we handle that? How do we handle that reality in our world? Continuing the theme of, of coldness and ice and snow that we've experienced this week, you may have heard the story from a few years ago where a man and his wife were found frozen to death in their car. They had been in the middle of a blizzard, much like the one that we experienced, only much worse, uh, further north in America. A blizzard had dumped just a ton of snow in their area and had literally buried their vehicle. And we learned that they had been there for some time. Uh, they're alone in that car, waiting for the end of their lives. But before this woman passed away, she scribbled a note. And she left it there in the car. And the note simply said, I don't want to die this way. Now that's a tragic story. Perhaps more tragic is this reality. Then when it was all said and done, they realized that less than 10 feet away from their car was a bus filled with people that stayed huddled together through that storm, staying warm, keeping each other awake, somehow sustaining themselves through the storm, and they were alive when it was all over to tell the story. Neither group knew the other one was there living out the storm all alone. There are so many people in our world, even in our church, that are struggling for life, living in and out of fear, with no confidence, the assurance, the, the confidence, the peace, the freedom that comes from that kind of love. All the while, some of us, some of us are living safely and warmly in a nice bus surrounded by other believers, confident in our standing before God. Some of those folks don't even realize that we're here. They would love to be where we are. And it's up to us to help them find their way. It's up to us to bring them into fellowship. It's up to us to remind them of the beauty, the magnificence, the power, the might, the miraculous nature of their salvation. It's up to us to explain to them how good the good news really is. Wouldn't it be great if Kerrville Church of Christ was a body of believers that was known for that? Spreading this beautiful message 
But God has come to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And all you got to do is accept it. Believe it. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts, everything within our being, for what you've done for us through your Son. God, we have no words, we have no actions, we have no ability to repay you for what you've done. We thank you for your free gift. We thank you for your grace. God, we recognize that there are folks, even in this room, that do not experience the assurance of that salvation. God, I pray that even this morning, that you would soften their hearts, that you would relieve their anxiety, that you would do for them what you have begun to do with this word in 1 John, that you would help these people have full assurance of their salvation. God, give them confidence. Relieve anxiety so they may enjoy eternal life. And God, I pray that that message would be on our tongues as well that we would share that message with all of those around us, with our, with our friends and our family, with our associates, the people that we come in contact with every day this week. God, that that message would ring through our actions and through our words. God, what a tremendous opportunity you've given us and what an awesome responsibility to share with the world the message that you have come to save us and that you have saved us. God, we thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. You know, it could be this morning that, that you never responded to a message, that you never really understood what the gospel was about. But it really is as simple as that. Maybe today's the morning that you want to respond to this message. You want to accept Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the Savior of your life that you want to follow Jesus in and out of the grave of baptism, accepting freely this grace that will pour over you. We'd love to help you with that this morning, give you the opportunity to respond in that way. It could be that you are just struggling with life right now, and you do need somebody just to walk with you and pray with you. We want to give you the opportunity to receive those prayers as well. This body of Christ can help you in any of these ways. We invite you to come as we stand together and sing.